Audio Parfait. Today's episode is brought to you by The Gallery. Based out of New York, The Gallery is a curated collection of photographs from around the world. While we are all unable to travel, this is a great way to bring a piece of the world to you. Go to their Instagram or Twitter at the underscore gallery to see just a few of the prints that they have available. All prints are made from 100% recycled aluminum, giving your wall that gallery finish. Right now, the gallery is offering our listeners 15% off of their purchase by using the code 15 off. Go to thegallery.com. That's the G-A-L-R-Y.com. So your wall will never be boring again. Still nice, I guess. Yeah. That's what it's come to on this show, Weather Talk. <laughs> Welcome to Weather Talk with Kevin and Stephanie. It's the new show on the Audio Parfait Podcast Network. No, 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 no. Welcome back to Open a Fucking Book. We are on episode two of Alex Haley. Episode two! I'm, I'm Kevin. I'm Stephanie. Let's get at it. So when we last left Alex, he had just closed himself off inside of a, Moha- a Manhattan hotel to finish his book, on Malcolm X. And Malcolm was on the outs with Elijah Muhammad and the NOI. Now remember, I told you, remember that date, September 1st, I believe it was 1961, where he was supposed to have the uh, autobiography written? Yes, sure. Okay. Now, Malcolm soon left the NOI altogether. They were on the outs because he had said some shit, if you guys remember from uh, the first episode, that uh, Elijah Muhammad had specifically told him, do not say anything bad about Kennedy. Don't say so many bad things about white people because he was trying to keep it more PC because he wanted to get money from it. Malcolm didn't give a shit about that. He wanted to get the message out. So that's why they are on the outs, we can all remember. But now he has completely left the Nation of Islam, all together to form his own organization. The Muslim Mosque Incorporated. And he would dedicate himself more to political issues like voting rights, desegregating schools. Malcolm asked Doubleday to make his new organization the beneficiary of book royalties. In the event of his death, payment should go to his wife, Betty. Up to this point, Malcolm's story was about his descent into criminality, his re-education in prison, and his redemption under under the tutelage of Elijah Muhammad. Now the messenger was no longer his redeemer, but a false teacher and a corrupt fraud. Uh, They had preached um, stuff about either celibacy or staying with the woman you're with and being, you know, committed. And Elijah Muhammad was fathering children with all these other women. And it was, it was not, it was not, he, he was being hypocritical. And, sure. He wasn't Mormon instead of Islamic. <laughs> and well, it, that was something that Malcolm, one of the things that Malcolm couldn't stand by and, and look blindly at. 
Uh, as much as he loved Elijah Muhammad, that's the type of thing that really got under hypocrisy. The abrupt revision of Malcolm's anti-white opinions prompted Paul Reynolds to advise Haley about rewriting the manuscript. Quote, I think you're going to have to make it a little clearer that this is the past when he was hating all whites. He had decided against revising the book, saying, quote, I'm going to let it stand the way I've told it. If he did not see it immediately, Haley eventually realized that Malcolm's transformation put a sweeping curve in the book's narrative arc. The new turn would eventually account for much of its popularity. Now, on March 26th, Haley got a note from Malcolm that read, quote, There is a chance I may make a quick trip to several very important countries in Africa, including a, pilgrims, a pilgrimage to the Muslim holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Haley soon, be soon began to receive letters signed El Hajj Malik El Shabazz. His new name meant Malcolm of the tribe of Shabazz has made the journey to Mecca. Nice. Malcolm's views on many things changed during his pilgrimage. He decided to open up more about things he had been closed lip about before. Um, there's a little snippet in the book that talks about Malcolm goes over there and some of the nicest people he meets, he sits down and has meals with and talks to are some of the whitest men he's ever met in his life. And it completely changed his view on Caucasian or white men. So when he comes back, when he ends up coming back um, a little later, uh, his, his views on white people have pretty much not completely changed. White people still suck. Uh, and we all know that. But it's not, you can't ever trust a white man. It's more, be cautious, you know? That's, I agree. Okay. <laughs> now again, he decided to be open about more things that he wouldn't really talk about before, including his relationship with Elijah Muhammad. And by the mid-1964, Malcolm had decided that he would have to let Haley finish the book on his own terms about what to keep in, omit, or change, because he already believed that he would not live to see its completion. Haley decided to leave out some events that Malcolm found rather embarrassing, like meeting the KKK representatives and introducing visitors from the American Nazi Party to leaders of the NOI. The autobiography of Malcolm X must then be understood as the creation of its subject's life, not a factual recounting of it. That can be said of all autobiographies. Malcolm, Haley, and his editors collaborated on, interest, on an interesting narrative, but also one that would not repel readers. Some of the more uh, passe things that Malcolm had done while being part of the NOI, they kind of pulled that out of there. So, because he wasn't a fan of the KKK or, or the Nazis in general, but he understood the hate for another kind of person. He understood the, he understood the KKK hating the black man because he as a black man hated white people. He understood the Nazis hating of Jews because he hated white people. 
So even though he wasn't friends with them or completely agreed with everything that they stood for, he understood the hate. And now that he has different views on things, he's a little embarrassed by that, which I can, I understand that. Yeah, but I mean, it's kind of bullshit because it's, it's like textbooks trying to rewrite history. Tell us the truth about who this person is. Don't let them rewrite their own history just because they were ashamed of who they were before they understood right. what they were. Right. Right. It changes a lot for the book. It really does. But I think they were afraid that people, if they knew that he had, you know, met with KKK members and Nazi members, that a lot of people would say, uh, I'm not going to buy that book specifically because of the things you had done before. So it's an embarrassing thing. And honestly, if it was an embarrassing thing, but Doubleday felt like it's uh, that's a reason people are going to buy it. Because he, he learned from it and he grew from yeah, well, it. Well, what I'm saying is that even though he sees it as an, as an embarrassing thing, if Doubleday didn't see it as a problem, they probably would have said, no, keep it in. But since they obviously thought, and the editor obviously thought, that this might be a problem for book sales, that's why it, that's why it didn't, wasn't going into the book. Because it was going to hurt book sales. Because at the end of the Go day, money that's what matters. Ain't money. Haley continued to make progress on the book in May 1964. He assured Doubleday that with little more than half the book written, that he was doing what needed to be done to write a bestseller. On June 14th, he assured them that the final chapters would be turned in by the end of the week. It was not. <laughs> Go figure. Haley and Malcolm traded notes back and forth. Malcolm knew he was a marked man and took some advice from Haley and decided to go to Africa for four months to hopefully let things cool down. Haley's work on the book mostly stopped. The book was far from finished, but Haley needed money. So he started taking other writing projects, like we had spoken about the close to the end of episode one. Yes. The IRS was after him for unpaid taxes. That is something that you do not want to do. The IRS, it doesn't matter what you do in your life. If nobody else can pin anything on you, the IRS will get you in the end. Because the Al Capone. I think the IRS should be the FBI because the IRS always gets their money. The IRS always, if, if they can't get you for anything, they will get you for some type of tax fraud or tax evasion. They will Because once again, money is the most, yeah. most important. Like, look at Al Capone. They couldn't pin anything on him. What did he go to prison for? Tax, tax evasion. evasion. So he figured the easiest way to address his financial woes was to get more publishing contracts. Contracts Reynolds disagreed with. So, without Reynolds' knowledge, Haley had proposed articles for Life and the Saturday Evening Post. When Reynolds found out, he reminded Haley that it might hurt his relationship with Reader's Digest, which was still paying his $300 a month retainer. He loved the crew at the Digest and appreciated everything they had done for him, but he saw himself moving on to bigger things. He had done magazines, now he wanted to do books. The book he was thinking about was the one he now called Before This Anger. 
about black-white relations in the South of the 1930s. In August, Haley met with Doubleday editor Ken McCormick and his young assistant Lisa Drew to talk about Before This Anger. The book was similar to the project he had previously named Henning USA. It would be about the South in the 1930s when the blacks and whites enjoyed friendly, peaceful relations. He discussed it in the context context of the race riots that had been dominating newspaper headlines the past few weeks, especially in New York. McCormick liked the idea because of the contrast with the present day. He took extensive notes at the meeting, quote, A book Southerners will read with appreciation, told in terms of people, a book that expressed the warmth and love of the South. Doubleday offered a a modest $5,000 advance, which hardly solved his financial problems, but it gave focus to what he would write next. Now, $5,000 then is closer to $40,000 today, and that still wasn't taking care of his financial problems. If we were given $40,000, we would be able to pay off our fucking house. (laughs) And he still needs to pay the IRS off. Not by the fall of 1964, the book was still nowhere near finished. The autobiography. Yeah, but some of that you have to kind of pin on Malcolm. But he he really hadn't been writing. His whole thing is research, 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 research. And you'll come to find that out a little bit later. He loves the research. The writing comes second. It's a lot like Douglas Adams. Loves the life of being a writer, just not being a writer. Touche. Haley blamed the delay on Malcolm's absence and promised to have it submitted by the end of January 1965. Then he took off in mid-October to begin research on Before This Anger, including trips to London, Kansas City, and D.C. We'll get do uh, more on that trip later. Okay, but, but none of them are southern cities. No, but... Uh, Again, we'll get more into that later. Kansas City, he goes because he's only got one living relative left that was there at the time when they were all sitting down and talking on the front. Remember his? Yes, his, yes, his, yes. Yeah. They were all sitting on the front porch. His cousin is the only one still living that was there, Remember, who is old enough to remember those stories. She lives in Kansas City. He's got to go to London for one thing and D.C. for another, which we will cover in a little bit. But again, it's another one of these, you have a job to do. I'll do it, but first, I'm going to go do something for a job I don't have yet. Just kind of the way you work. Now, contrary to what they had hoped, the hostility to Malcolm by the NOI had escalated in his absence. He returned home on November 24th, 1964, to supporters and policemen taking photos of the crowd to identify his followers and potential attackers. In the early days of 1965, groups of black Muslim men stalked Malcolm in L.A., Chicago, and New York. He spoke on a Chicago TV show about how the NOI was determined to kill him. And there were, in fact, 15 Nation of Islam men with guns waiting for Malcolm at his hotel room. But the police made them leave. So, Because it's that easy. Uh, it, well, it was at the time. They just left. His home in Queens was firebombed. On Sunday, February 22nd, 
February 21st, Malcolm had just come to the podium of Harlem's Autobahn Ballroom, where he often spoke, when a commotion distracted the audience and three gunmen rose and shot Malcolm many times with a shotgun and pistols. He died almost immediately. New York was in turmoil, and many feared all-out war between Malcolm's followers and the NOI. Fearing violence at their bookstores across the country, on February 26th, Doubleday announced that it was canceling publication of the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, and I mean, I guess I get it, because they're terrified that the autobiography is going to come out and then there's just going to be riots at the bookstores over Malcolm X. Yeah. It's still kind of shitty, but... And, and if you go, if you get the book um, that we do the research on, on this... Uh, they go more into depth to all the shit that Malcolm was going through after he came back from Africa up until he died. I just kind of skimmed over it a little bit, but they he does go more into depth than that. So if that's something you're interested in, definitely go look that up. Now, in mid-March 1965, Reynolds was having no success finding another publisher. It was harder now to sell a book because Doubleday's rejection made other publishers fear the controversy surrounding the life of Malcolm. But Reynolds persisted, and a few weeks later... Grove Press. Stephanie, do you remember Grove Press and who we happened to be talking about at the time of Grove Press? I, d I don't remember. Take take a wild shot in the William fucking S. Burroughs. Time. William S. Burroughs. Yes. Every biography I have read, including Wollstonecraft, since we did his episodes, he has come up. And it's getting annoying. <laughs> All the interconnectedness between these authors. Uh, Grove Press agreed to publish the book. Grove was the only publishing house that showed any solid interest. Haley claimed that he had sat down immediately after Malcolm's assassination and had written the epilogue in two weeks. In fact, in May, after the deal was struck with Grove, it was still not written. The more of that lying that we like to talk about. The delay, once again, was based on his propensity to move on to the next project before the current one was finished. As always, he did so out of desperation for money. The IRS was making more serious threats. He wanted to write a stage musical called The Way and write a memoir called The Malcolm X I Knew. Or you could just write the biography you're fucking supposed to be writing. Yeah, but... Reynolds... Huh? I said that would make sense. Yeah, don't you think? Reynolds simply told him to finish the Malcolm X book he was currently supposed to be working on. Great minds think alike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Haley got it turned in by June, and the autobiography of Malcolm X was finalist, finally published September of 1965. So only about four years later than he said it was going to be. Yeah, that's... I think it's 40. Was it 65 or was it 63? Or was it 61 or was it 63 he said he'd have it in by? I'm, I don't remember. I got to go back and read my notes. But either way, he's either... Two or four two years four year, late. Two years or four years late. It's one or the other. It got mostly rave review, reviews. And by 1967, it was selling at a rate of 75000 a month for a total of more than 2 million by 1969. 
It was on the list of the 10 most read books on six college campuses, four of those Ivy League, and the New York Times ranked it as one of the 10 most important books of the 1960s. So it wasn't all for nothing. It was a huge success for him and for Grove. Uh, I bet all those other book publishing companies were kicking themselves in the asses. Well, Doubleday still had him on the hook for another book. So they knew if they could get this out of him, they could get something else out of him. So I'm sure that they were upset. I'm sure all the other publishers that kind of skipped over it were upset once they saw the money that was coming in. But, yeah, fuck them. But he he did really well. I mean, this was a, a huge success. Now, let's go back a little bit. Do the the tour to start getting information for Before This Anger. 1964 and 1965, before he completed the autobiography Malcolm X, Haley took three trips that shaped his next project before this anger. The contract he had signed with Doubleday in August 1964 remained in force after the publisher canceled Malcolm X. In early 1964, Haley went to London to do a Playboy interview with the actress Julia Christie. When the interview was canceled, he visited the British Museum. There, he saw the Rosetta Stone, the 2nd century BCE artifact that displayed a message in three ancient languages, which enabled a French scholar to translate translate Egyptian hieroglyphs. Not the uh, not the computer program Rosetta Stone. I I figured. Or the tool song Rosetta Stoned. <laughs> the actual stone. Haley was excited about how the Rosetta Stone had unlocked a door into the history of man. He felt vaguely that it had personal significance, which finally dawned on him. He wanted to find the meaning of the words of his African ancestor. When he went to Kansas City in October 1964 to help with his brother George's campaign, he visited with his cousin, Georgia Anderson, the last survivor among the women on Cynthia's front porch. So, technically he was doing two things in Kansas City, and we'll get more to the the whole George thing later, I think. I don't remember if I, how much I covered of it. Probably not a lot, if I did any. Oh, okay. Then, on a Saturday in 1965, Haley went to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. and looked at a census record from Almanance County, North Carolina, for the years just after the Civil War. In the story told on the front porch, Almanance was the place where his great-grandfather, Tom Murray, lived before moving to Henny, Henning, He looked at frame after frame of microfilm of the 1870 census, and he was at the point of frustration when he found the names Tom and Irene Murray. Then he found a young child, Elizabeth, Aunt Liz. Cynthia was not listed, he realized, because she was not yet born. Thrilled with his discovery, he returned for more research at the archives, the Library of Congress, the Daughters of the American Revolutionary Library. These discoveries, coupled with Cousin George's stories, led Haley to change, before this anger, from a portrait of 1930s South to the story of his family. He wanted to start with the original African taken into slavery. His name no one seems to have ever heard. Haley soon began calling him the Mandingo and reported that he sired a number of children on the several plantations to which he was sold. One of those children, the last one, 
Haley believed, told the Mandingo story to Chicken George, his great-great-grandfather, who handed it down to Tom Murray. Tom told it to Cynthia and Liz, who repeated it to little Alex Palmer Haley. He decided that the story of his family was the story of all African-American families, and in order to do it properly, he needed to research as far back as possible, all the way to the African village his ancestor was taken from. But he pleaded with Reynolds to be patient and that his new book would be ready for publish by the end of 1965. Again, didn't happen. He needs to quit making promises he can't keep. He loves to make promises. Loves to make promises. And he, they will keep happening. Well, I guess that's why they say promises are meant to be broken. But they're not. That's the point of a promise is to not break it. <laughs> Promises are meant to be broken, so make a fucking threat instead, because then you sound serious. Most of America had turned a blind eye to slavery. Uh, the only literature that covered the subject was Uncle Tom's Cabin and Gone with the Wind. The history of American slavery was in the midst of a far-reaching revision in the 1960s, largely influenced by the civil rights movement. Younger historians rejected the view promoted since the late 19th century, which this is prominent in Uncle Tom's Cabin and Gone with the Wind, that slavery was a benign institution populated by happy slaves and kindly masters. Yeah, it was whitewashed. Scholars began to offer a harsher view. And uh, when I say harsher, I mean honest. Because, yeah, Gone with the Wind, everybody loves Gone with the Wind. Everybody's seen Gone with the Wind. Oh, it's so great. It is a horrible representation of to which slavery yes. was. Yeah. Uncle Tom's Cabin as well. Now, George Sims, remember, the old friend, mm -hmm. uh, helping Haley research before this anger, found a collection of two. 1,000 slave interviews recorded by the Works Progress Administration in the 1930s. To Haley, the interviews duplicated the, quote, stories and phrasings I had heard as a boy on the front porch in Henning. In October 1965, Haley published an article entitled, My Search for Roots, in the Philadelphia Sunday Bulletin. Quote, I have traveled thousands of miles to see and question our family's oldest members. Their narratives often were emotional experiences. Sometimes I had to take notes through tears. He discussed the fact of white paternity in many black families, his paternal great-grandparents, a Confederate colonel named James Jackson presided over an Alabama plantation. Haley revealed that he had already established the time, 1766, that his ancestor had been brought on a slave ship to America. He intended to travel to the slave coast of Africa and then return symbolically by ship. I don't believe I get into it much uh, if I remember my notes, but there is even times where he would, he claims, claims to have gone down into the bowels of the ship and slept and, and pretty much rode from one end of the Atlantic to the other laying on his back in the bowels of the ship like slaves did. Now, obviously, he didn't have the, you know, chains and locks and everything on him, but he claims he is he did that. There's some speculation to those claims because most people who travel on ships like that or most people who work on ships like that would say, 
Nobody's allowed to go down to the bowels of the ship. That's where the engine is. But, again, he claims that. Haley learned from his reading about Africa in 1965 and 1966 that he probably would not find what he was seeking about his ancestors in traditional written sources. Having discovered most of what he knew from the stories his grandmother told, he believed that he would need oral sources. As it happened, a scholar had just emerged whose work provided a strong rationale for using oral sources. In 1961, Jan or Vansina, a Belgian anthropologist who had done extensive work in Central Africa, moved to the University of Wisconsin at the same time he published a seminal book, The Oral Tradition. He believed that oral history, possibly not as detailed as written history, was just as valid. Was he able to see her? I don't know. (laughs) I thought so. Do I do another one of your drum rolls? There you go. In August 1966, Haley told Paul Reynolds that his marriage was failing, but that he and Julie were trying to reconcile. Marital problems worsened Haley's financial strain. Julie demanded money, though there's no indication that her demands were anything but reasonable, given that she was tending to a two-year-old child, their daughter Cynthia. Traveling frequently to locations that he kept secret and living in hotels cost money that Haley did not have. He now wanted to move the family intact to California for a new start in the marriage. The IRS was trying to obtain 100% of his income. In October of 1966, Haley received a bill from the IRS for $4,577 for back taxes from 1963. That's about $33,000 today. Haley told Reynolds that he was spending a lot of time fending off creditors. He owed Diners Club for accumulating travel expenses. Could Reynolds lend him $5,000, most of which would go to the IRS? Reynolds worked with lawyers on Haley's IRS problems and lent him the money. To address his his financial crisis in 1966, Haley signed on with the Colston Lee Agency, an established speakers bureau that represented many celebrities. Haley was steadily growing, gaining fame as Malcolm X's co-author. In 1967, lectures became his main source of income. Also, in the fall of 1966, Haley attended a garden party at the Westchester County home of DeWitt and Lila Wallace. Haley explained to Lila Wallace his family's history project, and the next day, she convened a meeting of editors at Reader's Digest to hear more about the forthcoming book. Haley mesmerized the editors for three hours. At the end of the meeting, the Digest offered him an advance of $12,000, most of it to cover travel while he finished the book. The magazine received serial serial rights for Before This Anger. After having rejected the Digest's support in 1964, he gladly returned to the fold. About damn time he gets his smarts about him. 
Haley was determined to get to Africa to uncover the African part of his family's story. He began going to the United Nations in Manhattan to look for Africans who might help him translate the words he had heard as a child in Henning. Haley was told of a student at Hamilton College that was from Gambia that might be able to help him. In October of 1966, Haley went to Hamilton to give a lecture and insisted on meeting the student, Ibu Manga. Now, this is about, from, from this point on, there's going to be a lot of African words, names, cities, that I am not 100% sure I am pronouncing correctly. If I mispronounce them, I apologize. Tweet us, open an effing book, email us, info at audioparfait.com, and let me know if I mispronounce them. I, I apologize. I'm doing the best my Midwest upbringing has to offer. Now, Abu let Haley know that Mandinka was not his native language, but that he understood it. He translated all the words that Haley could remember and then told him something that really excited him. Quote, we have in the Gambia, and yes, it's technically called the Gambia, not just Gambia. I Kind of weird, but okay. We have in the Gambia what they call traditional historians, oral historians. Senegal is trying to get all these historians to make a collective history. Haley had never thought of the Gambia as the home of his African ancestors, just the slave coast. Anytime I hear, because when you get through the rest of the story, you'll realize that Ibu, he, he knows some of that language, but he does get some words like, some words have two meanings, like, like in it, English. Yes. And uh, all I could think about is the one, the prince from Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, how he keeps getting some of the words mixed up, and Ace doesn't exactly know what the other tribe is saying, and they keep calling him White Devil. Yeah. Uh, now, in November, Haley went to Ireland to research his father's roots of the village of Carrick Macross. 55 miles north of Dublin, to find relatives of his paternal great-grandfather, James Jackson. He was instructed by local Jackson descendants to go to London and check the genealogical libraries. Again, he found nothing. Then, he went to the Gambia High Commission office in London to follow up on the info, info from Ibu Manga. He had found in Virginia a deed transferring, quote, one Negro man-slave named Toby, the white man's name the African had always objected to, from John Waller of Spotsylvania, Spottysylvania. Spottysylvania. It's a weird fucking name. That, oh. Because it's, it's uh, S-P-O-T-S, Spots, Y, Spotsy, L. Spotsylvania. V-A-N-I-A. Spotsylvania. In Virginia? It's French. or In Virginia. Something, it sounds like. Yeah, in Virginia. Okay. Or, yeah, Virginia. Yeah. Spotsylvania. Okay, from John Waller of Spotsylvania County to his brother, William, in 1768. He believed now that his ancestors had crossed the Atlantic in 1766 and that he could find the name of the ship 
that he was imprisoned on in Gambia's capital, Bathurst, now Banjul. By January of 67, didn't he say he'd have it done by 65? And now we're in 67? Yeah. McCormick was getting worried about Before This Anger, which he wanted to publish in 68. It had already been under contract for two and a half years. Haley felt that he needed to do much more research for the book, and in order to do that and really focus on the writing, he needed more money so he could pay off his debts. If he quit creating all these debts, he'd be fine, but... The IRS had found him negligent in paying his taxes in 1960, and his file was tagged for investigation for non-payment. They sent a garnishment order to Reynolds for Haley's royalties from Malcolm X, which Reynolds ignored. But then he found out about Haley's other book contracts, a biography for Grove Press and a children's book for Viking Press. Reynolds worried that these other commitments would take away from his writing for Doubleday. Haley didn't care. He said he would entertain any honorable way to relieve his financial woes. He complained that Doubleday's advance was too small, $5,000, about $40,000 today, and that the money was long gone. He felt like they should invest in him and his writing and that he deserved what a lot of other authors were getting at that time. Then Reynolds found out about even more projects Haley was working on, including a screenplay to turn the yet unwritten before this anger into a film. Reynolds again begged him to stop with the other commitments to help Haley stress over to help Haley stress over money. Reynolds sold the paperback rights to Before This Anger to Dell Publishing for fifteen thousand dollars. So probably about one hundred and twenty. Now, in March of 1967, Haley organized his first trip to Africa. Ibu Manga agreed to help and had his father, Al Haji, provide Haley with a list of Gambians who could assist in tracing his ancestor. He wrote to the contacts and described his book to an official in the office of the Gambia's prime minister. He told them that he was going to serialize it in the Reader's Digest and planned to make a film from the book a sizable portion of which would be filmed in Gambia, employing many Gambians as actors. Haley paid for Ibu to travel ahead and set up meetings with Gambians that could help. They formed the Haley Committee. Haley told them that his forefather's name was Kin Tay, and that he believed he was taken from the Gambia in late 1760s. He gave the committee pictures of his family, the Gambians thought that the name was significant because they said that their oldest villages tend to be named for those families which founded them. They examined a map on which they were marked two villages, Kinti Kunda and Kinti Kunda Jana Ya. They explained about Griots, to whom Ibu Manga had alluded in his first meeting with Haley. Griots functioned as oral historians. They told stories over and over about the history of villages, clans, and empires. What Haley needed was a griot of the Kinte clan, and the committee promised to see if they could find such a person. After five days, Haley returned to the United States. When I think of griots, I think of, like, the old minstrels, like back... Uh, 
in ancient Rome and ancient Greece that would travel from city to city telling stories because they didn't really have the written word all that well yet. So they would memorize these stories and these musicals and go from town to city to city, town to town, village to village, and, and tell these stories for money. They also did that during the Renaissance. Yeah. That was what, uh, like Homer, the story of Homer. Mm-hmm. That's what he did. He traveled from city to city and told his epic poems. He didn't write them down. He spoke them, which yes. I imagine took a long time because they are quite big. Yes. Haley and George Sims returned to Bathurst on May 13th and met with a man named Demba Kinte, who came from the village of Jufur and had discovered this name, Keba Kanga Fulfana. I cannot help but think of the fucking name game. Frank, Frank, Bullbank, uh, yeah, Chuck, Chuck, Bullbuck, Banana, Fana, Fulfuck. <laughs> <sighs> But I hear yes. Fofana, and that's all I can think of. Is a fuck. He identified as the Griot of the Kinte clan. Haley was told that often the easiest way to establish a family connection was to examine facial features. Demba Kinte resembled the photo of Chicken George that Haley had given the Gambians, and the committee had calculated that, Kinte, that a Kinte ancestor called Kunta could logically have disappeared in the 1760s. Haley spent the next few days seeing where slaves had been collected and imprisoned and traveling to the village of Jafur to meet Keba Kanga Fofana. Fofana told Haley that he resembled the Kintes with the exception of the light-colored skin. Again, his one of his great-grandfathers was a white man from Ireland. Fofana sat him down and told him stories of his supposed ancestors, and at one point the story Haley was hearing blended into the same stories he heard on his grandmother's porch when he was young. When he returned to America, he told Reynolds he could now trace his heritage back nine generations to 1705. He was excited about the book that he could bring to life from his research, Reynolds just wanted to know when he could get the first hundred pages. It had been almost three years, and he still had none. Haley told him not to worry and that he would have the first 50 pages in no time, and he promised to deliver the first finished manuscript in December. By September, they still haven't seen any progress. Reynolds begged him to stop the research and finally get to work on the book. In September of 1967, Haley spent six weeks looking for the ship his ancestors were brought to in America. Were brought to America in. It took 1,023 sheets of slave ship records before he finally found an entry from the Lord Legionnaire. Haley believed that the information on time and place fit this ship the best. October 1967, Haley went to Wisconsin to meet with Jan Vanessina. Vanessina translated the African words handed down in his family and confirmed the translation that Ibu Manga had offered a year earlier. He consulted with another Africanist, Philip Curtin, who came to the same conclusion about Mandinka words and the likelihood of Haley's ancestor descending from the Kinte clan. The writing was slow going, even though he constantly took his agent and ed- he constantly told his agent and editors 
that the writing was going well. The problem was that even though he loved to write, he loved researching even more. Begs question, why don't you become a researcher and let somebody else write it? That that would be the smart thing to do, yeah. but he didn't seem like he was, you know, there's different levels of intelligence. And he didn't have that level. <laughs> <laughs> he had a certain level. He was smart when it came to certain things, not so smart when it came to other things. He continued to travel and collect information on slave trade artifacts and British abolitionism. He studied the habits of sharks that trailed transatlantic ships. Um, I'm guessing more than likely because I guess they would throw the dead, the slaves that died in holding over the side and the sharks would eat them. So I, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I don't know. Just think if he would have written all that when Google was around. <laughs> All well, he would have to do is Google search everything. He searched for Waller and that had purchased the Africans. He went to Virginia to wander the paths he believed Kuta Kinte walked. He went to North Carolina to see where Chicken George had lived. He even went to Scotland in 1968 to research cockfighting, Chicken George's vocation. He spent months researching blacksmithing, Tom Murray's trade. After months of traveling, he spent two months in France to write before this anger he sublet an apartment from James Earl Jones. Ooh. Uh-huh. All the travel in 1967 into 1968 left Haley well, pretty much broke. I was going to say broke as fuck. So he tried to sell the movie rights to Before This Anger. He met with Hollywood lawyer. I Holly, he met with a Hollywood lawyer and agent. Louis Blau, or Louis Blau, I can never tell you, you never know if it's Louis or Louis, because they're spelled different, mm-hmm. who took him to meet with Columbia Pictures, who optioned the rights for $50,000. On top of all this, Haley was still taking lecturing gigs. He was a wonderful speaker that learned quickly the parts of the stories that got the best reaction and drew the most emotion when talking about Malcolm or his childhood listening to his grandmother, listening to his grandmother and her stories. Deciding what parts to leave in, and what to remove, he gave his Saga of the People lecture based on Before This Anger over a thousand times between 1967 and 1970. It was priming the public for the book long before it was ever published. At each lecture, now again, from 1967 to 1970, each lecture he promised to have the book done in six Months. <laughs> and there were a thousand <laughs> lectures. So He lied literally a thousand times. Yes. More than a thousand because that was just to the, the people receiving the lectures, not the actual uh, publishers. Yes. Doubleday began to get letters wanting to know where the book was because they had heard the story. Now they wanted the book. Said he'd have it ready in six months. It's been six months. Where's the fucking book? Oh, you're going to have to wait a few more years for that, sir. While lecturing, he encountered people who helped him advance his research, sometimes being handed notes with leads, even meeting with a college dean named Waller Weiser, who explained that he was a descendant from the Waller family who owned Kuta Kinte, and his wife was a genealogist and knew his family history well. Haley knew that the lecture tour was helping him with recognition, and he asked McCormick 
and Reynolds to come see one. By then, it had been seven years since Haley signed the original contract, and their patience was wearing thin. Five years for your patience to begin wearing thin? Well, that was seven years since he had signed the contract. Five years since it was supposed to come out. The most patient publishing company in the fucking world. Well, they saw what he did with Malcolm X, and they knew that if he could get this book out, it would be huge. So they had patience, but it was it was starting to wean. It was that's I used to have the most patience in the world, and now I have zero. Yeah. Well, they went and saw the lecture. And McCormick found that Haley's lecture absolutely hypnotized the audience, himself included. So that help, helps a little bit with the patience. Like, okay, if this is what we're going to be getting, then we'll wait. We'll, we'll, we'll keep holding on. But even with that, it doesn't matter how good the book is. If we never get it, it won't matter. So Yeah, because they keep giving them money and... <laughs> Well, Reynolds keeps giving him money that he's going to end up having to pay back to Reynolds. But in August of 1969, he and Julie were on the verge of divorce. He warned Reynolds that Julie might call him asking for Haley's whereabouts, which should not be revealed. The break wouldn't be finalized until June of 71, so two years later. Haley would be supporting two ex-wives and his daughter, Cynthia, only seven at the time. You remember, he had two previous children, a daughter and a son, with Nan, but they were grown by now. Haley finally turned in what he had written under the constant urging of Reynolds. Reynolds was not too encouraged with what he saw. The way it was looking, it was, to going, it was going to go from a 150 to 200,000 word book to a million or a million and a half word long book. Haley sent the text to Lisa Drew, who also thought it was poorly written. Haley again turned to Mary Murray Fisher, who had helped him before with editing, who deleted a high percentage of the verbiage and remade it into a coherent and readable narrative. The Fisher edited copy pleased Reynolds, but the African Origins chapter made him wonder if the book was fact or fiction. Hmm. Last thing you want to do is put out a a non-fiction book that isn't true. Or tell everybody this all happened and it turns out that it didn't. That doesn't play over well. I mean, it'd be simple enough. All they'd have to do is do a DNA test, which they didn't really have back then. They didn't have back then. And how are you going to do DNA on a slave that nobody knows, really? This is all just hearsay. If that's the region that guy's from. That Demba Kinte should be related. But will the DNA be close enough to say, yeah, you two are from the same tribe because they could be distant relatives and it still show up that's what as long as they're because they'd be nine it would have been seven generations or he would have been five generations from that one and two yeah. generations from the other 
people from the Gambia. Like seven, seventh cousins, five times removed, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but trust me, we will get into more of that, more of that, a little bit later. Progress seemed to stop again because of other writing projects. In the summer of 1970, he wrote a play and signed a contract to write a biography. 1971, Reynolds had lost his empathy about Haley's money problems and his inability to finish before this anger. Now, almost six years late, he was at a low point in his life and took to sailing around the Atlantic, where he claimed he got most of his writing done. In 1972, Haley made an effective change to the title beginning to refer to the book as Roots. In August, Reynolds read a further revised 408 pages of Roots, the part called The African Heritage. Reynolds thought it was beautiful and that Haley could be a very successful novelist, but he worried about the length of the book, fearing it might need to be released in two or three volumes, because putting it out in only one would make the book too expensive and hurt sales. In 1973, Doubleday made it clear it was only publishing a single volume. Because they had to wait this long for one, you're only getting one. Yeah. That summer, he rented a house in Jamaica and to finally finish the book. The IRS had put a lien on all his assets, and now he was broke, but help came from Hollywood. In 1974, Columbia Pictures canceled its contract for the film rights because of financial problems. Warner Brothers negotiated a contract for a TV series for which Haley was paid a $50,000 option on a $250,000 full fee for rights when the book was finished. Haley used the money to buy a house in Jamaica. He set up the Kente Corporation, a tax shelter. He and his brother George planned to sell merchandise to capitalize on the new interest in the African past, and they received a half-million-dollar grant from the Carnegie Corporation for a genealogical library. Quote, Probably I've become the person most knowledgeable about black genealogy, he told to the Wall Street Journal in 1972, a quote that had set him up for later criticism. Don't ever say shit you can't back up. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for TheBeardStruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Or are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over The Beard Struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90-day money-back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them, my beard has never looked felt, or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code, AUDIO15 at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O-1-5 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face! 
True that. Many broken promises and lies occurred for the next few months or so. There was a lot of them, and I didn't want to put them all in, so I just subbed it up. He lies a lot about getting the book done, doesn't get the book done, makes promises, breaks them, back and forth, back and forth, as he does, have you seen. Haley promised that the final manuscript would be delivered by June 15, 1975. Lisa Drew headed to Jamaica with the intention of returning a few days later with the book. You'll understand her surprise when she arrived not only to find Murray Fisher living there, but also only about 70% of the manuscript was written. So, Drew incorporated herself into the process. She finally said, fuck this, you're getting this shit done. Drew worked in one room reading the manuscript while Haley wrote on the porch. He was writing the Chicken George portion of the book in longhand on a legal pad, and when he had written two or three pages, he gave them to a typist. When the typing was completed, Fisher edited the text. Fisher cut, tightened sentences, moved material around, and then gave the pages back to the typist, who proceeded, who produced a new draft. Drew then read Fisher's edits, made more suggestions, and the manuscript was typed again. Seems like maybe we just skip the whole typing, just do the, the writing down, edit it that way so it only has to be typed once. Because you're going through a lot of fucking paper and ink that way. You're going through a lot of paper and ink anyway. Not as much as you are typing it three times. It's easier to type than it is to write longhand. Well, that's how Haley wrote. He wrote longhand, and then he gave it to the typist. The typist typed out exactly what he had. Fit Murray Fisher would go over it all, change it, give it back to her. She'd retype it the way he wanted it. It would go to Lisa Drew. She would edit it, give it back to her. She'd retype it again to get the final version. It just seems like if you wrote it out in longhand, gave it to Murray. Murray looked at it, fixed it himself, gave it to Lisa. Lisa read it the way it was supposed to be. She put her two cents in, then gave it to the typist, because the, and the typist could type that all out herself, because we're going to find out here in a second. She was an amazing typist. Seems to me like that would maybe cut a whole process out. Maybe, but the, I mean, that's how they, they work. That was their process. When Drew was ready to leave with only the first third of the manuscript, she turned to the title page and saw Roots by Alex Haley and Murray Fisher, to which Drew said that dual authorship was not acceptable. Haley and Fisher had a bitter argument, and Haley told Fisher to leave. In October 1975, when Fisher and Haley met with the producers of the upcoming TV series, they argued some more, and Haley told Fisher he would finish the book by himself. Nine days later, He wrote to Fisher a letter of reconciliation and asked him to return to Jamaica in November to help finish the text. I'll do it alone. No, I won't. Please come home. The two worked well from then until the end. Also helping was Myron Lewis, a graduate student at Ohio State University. 26-year-old Mai was living with Haley and typing for him in exchange for Haley's promise... More promises. Yeah, we know how well those work out. To help her write her own book. She typed 120 words a minute and proofread as she went. So she's... That's pretty fucking good. 
especially on a typewriter. Yeah, that's this is, incredible. Not the, it's not the real easy typing computer. This is a fucking typewriter from, from the fucking 70s. In October of 1975, Haley received the $250,000 payment for the TV series. And in December, he submitted the final draft of Roots to Doubleday. More than 11 years after he had signed the contract. The book ended up focusing more on slavery than it did on Haley's family story. Over his long years of writing the book, Haley's dominant concern was establishing his African past. He saw that his greatest contribution to black American history. The book's focus also reflected the disproportionate time he had spent on researching and writing about the African and Middle Passage and Middle Passage experience. By the time he had got to writing about family members born after Chicken George's time, the last four generations, he had to hammer out the remainder in about two months. The ending feels rushed because the writing of it was rushed. Haley planned to dwell on his family's post-Civil War experience in a separate book. So anytime you're ever reading, we've come to find out, anytime you're ever reading a book and you're like, seems like a real weird way to end or a real quick way to end. It feels like it just kind of got rushed through. It's probably because it was. Yeah, we can blame publishers for that. You can blame authors for not sitting their asses down and doing what they're supposed to be doing because it happened with him. It happened with fucking Douglas Adams. <laughs> it happens. They don't want to fucking do the job. Well, sometimes it sucks just sitting there or you get writer's block. Douglas or... Adams used to lay on the ground and pout until people told him to get up and do it. or just. And sometimes you need that kick in the ass to write. 40-year-old man. Get off your ass and write your fucking Both Haley and Doubleday insisted that the book was non-fiction. The book jacket mentioned the stories Haley had heard as a child and then called the writer's research an astonishing feat of genealogical detection in which he discovered not only the name of the African, but the precise location of Jafur, the very village in the Gambia from which he was abducted in 1767 at the age of 16 and taken on the Lord Legionnaire to Maryland and sold to a Virginia planter. The book jacket claimed not only that Haley had recovered his family's past, but that as the first black American writer to trace his origins back to their roots, he has told the story of 25 million Americans of African descent. He has rediscovered for an entire people a rich cultural heritage that slavery took away from them along with their identities. This is a big, bold proclamation to be making. Yes, it is. Though Haley warned against reading the book strictly as objective history, Doubleday's advertising it so emphatically as historical truth opened the book to intense scrutiny. Remember I told you all that controversy was controversial? This is where it's going to start to kick in. Asked later if Roots was a work of fiction or nonfiction, Lisa Drew said that while there were fictional elements in the book, particularly the made-up dialogue among slaves, the main thrust of which were historically true, the life of the African, the slave ship crossing, the conditions on the ships were pretty universally true. Obviously, you're not going to have all of the dialogue between two people. 
perfect. A lot right. of that you're making up. But I can give I can give leeway to the whole okay, the setting is right, the people are right, the events, but maybe the dialogue is is kind of made up. That I get. We don't know what people were saying back then. I understand that. Right. That's purely but that's, speculation. But that's not the only thing that is speculative about roots. The insistence on categorizing roots simply as nonfiction was a mistake. Some passages of the book were based on Haley's guessing about facts and idling evidence. By the early 1970s, when he had already drafted and edited the African section of Roots, abundant historical evidence contradicted his depiction of Jafar as a kind of Eden. He had been advised that his that his dating of Kuta Kinte's life was based on doubtful information. Bakaray Sidibe, the Gambian National Archivist, sent Haley a letter on May 30, 1973, expressing his doubts about Fofana's reliability. Quote, His young days were spent more in sowing wild oats than in studying. He had been a drummer, for which the Mandinka word is jolly, which can also mean griot. Hmm. Sidibe said that, quote, By birth and his own views, he is not a griot, but an imam. Fofana had learned his stories from other elders with, with whom he had sat often in the village. Moreover, Sidibe told Haley that Cabo Fofana was now giving a different account of the history of Kunta Kinte, saying that Kunta was in prison at James Island for seven years. Sidibe had also interviewed a griot of the Kinte clan and several of its elders and heard different accounts of Kunta Kinte's genealogy, all of which seemed to locate him several generations later in time than Haley had placed him. Haley chose to disregard Sidibe's information. When challenged about the veracity of Roots, Haley usually responded by talking about his 12 years of research and extensive travel to study archives on three continents. But the admitting that some parts of the book were fictional and using the unfortunate term faction to name his genre, he had undermined his claim of historicity. Faction. Fiction and fact put together, he called his genre faction. Nice. It's factual, kinda. <sighs> the book was finally published August of 19... Of 1976. And in September, Haley began a month of promotional events where he was constantly asked about what was verifiable fact and what was made up. It sold at $12.50, making it one of the more expensive books on the market that year. Don't you wish you could buy a brand new book for $12.50 now? Yeah. For 400 and something pages? No. No, 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 no. No, no. That was just... That was just the African heritage part was 400-something pages. Oh. Yeah. This thing is like damn near a 1,000 pages long. Oh. Roots oh. is huge. Yeah, that was just one part of it. Well, then, yeah. I, let's go buy some books for 1250 <laughs> It began as number five on the general nonfiction list in the New York Times. 
second on the list by mid-November, and became number one a week later. The majority of the reviews were positive, but the longer it sat on the bestseller list, the more scrutiny it got about its historical accuracy. Like how when Kinte was supposedly in Virginia picking cotton, cotton wasn't grown there yet. The wire fencing that he jumped over to escape did not exist for another century. And the terms for poor whites, cracker, and redneck came much later. Haley made the plea, quote, I was just trying to give my people a myth to live by. Hmm. Next was to come the TV series. And when we talk about Roots, I think everybody thinks about the TV series before they think about the book. A lot of people out there don't even realize that Roots was a book. They just think it was a miniseries. Producer David Wolper approached ABC. They agreed to do the series, but only with a $5 million budget, later raised to six. They knew they needed to appeal to white viewers since they made up about 90% of the viewing audience, so they went for big TV names. White actors like Sandy Duncan, Lloyd Bridges, Ed Asner, and Yvonne DiCarlo, a.k.a. Lily Munster. And well-known black actors like John Amos, Cicely Tyson, Richard Roundtree, otherwise known as, you know who Richard Roundtree is? No. I'm talking about Chef. Oh. Yeah. And a yet unknown actor with no credits to his name. Before he put on the visor for Star Trek The Next Generation, and before he had a look because it was in a book, a one LeVar Burton. Yes, that's right. Starring as Kuta Kinte. Shooting began in June 76 in Savannah, Georgia, although the series strays a bit from Haley's original vision, like it always does. Both the show and the book shifted mass culture to a new understanding of slavery and the black family. Fred Silverman, head of entertainment programming for ABC, decided to run the show on consecutive nights rather than once a week for eight weeks. He thought it would help concentrate the emotional impact. Plus, if it was a failure, its effect on ratings would be minimized. It was broadcast from January 23rd to the 30th of 1977 during a horrible cold spell that many believe helped the ratings since people stayed in to stay warm. They hoped that the series in a whole would bring in about 50 million viewers over the eight nights. It brought in that many the first night. Wow. The show received between a 62 and a 68 share of the Americans watching TV each night. 80 million Americans. The, quote, the largest TV audience in the history of the medium up to that time watched the final episode. Wow. ABC estimates that 130 million, or about 85% of all homes with TVs, saw some part of the series. Over the course of eight nights in January, a middle-aged writer named Alex Haley became one of the most famous men in America. The thing about how he uh, he went to bed not knowing he was famous. Yeah. And when he woke up, 
people on the street all of a sudden knew who he was. Yeah. Kind of a culture shock. By February of the same year, 250 colleges were offering credit courses based on Roots, the book and or the show. Random House sold 150 institution of Roots curriculum. Black studies departments were seeing a sudden upsurge of interest in the curricula. Travel agencies around the country reported a surge in interest in heritage tours to Africa. The series' success also led to book success. On the third day of the show, the book sold 67,000 copies. Roots sold 1 million hardback copies in 1977 alone. Damn. So, all that time waiting really was, it wasn't for nothing. For the next year after the publication of the book and the airing of the miniseries, Haley took part in a continuous stream of talk shows, press conferences, autograph sessions, and events held in his honor. He received keys to city, honorary degrees, citations from Congress. He had lunch with former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, President Jimmy Carter, and the Queen of Iran. The famous actors Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando sought to meet him, but he also got pleas for money, requests for help in getting others' work published, and still more invitations for public appearances. For one six-month period, Haley had 802 lecture invitations. His fee was now at least $4,000. A German publisher paid $260,000 for the rights to book the book for the rights to put the book out there. Everything seemed right. He even married My Lewis, the typist from Jamaica. But with huge fame usually comes huge controversy. Yes. In the spring of 1977, he faced conflicts with his publisher, journalists determined to expose his mistakes and roots, and two authors who alleged he had copied parts of Roots from their work. For the next two years, he would spend much of his time defending himself, both in the court of public opinion and the federal courts of the Southern District of New York. In March 1977, Haley sued Doubleday for $5 million in California State Court, alleging that the publisher had failed to sell the book properly and asking that the paperback contract be renegotiated. The complaint argued that Doubleday had not provided book distributors with sufficient copies of Roots to satisfy the clearly foreseeable public demand. As a result, copies were not available for sale in Los Angeles and other metropolitan areas during and after the television program ran. Another part of the complaint contended that Doubleday's premature announcement that Dell, which it now owned, would soon produce a paperback had undermined hardback sales and reduced Haley's royalties. There was a lot of money at stake. Haley got $1.87 for each hardback sold. Now remember, sold a million hardbacks in 77 alone. So that's $1.87 million just that year. But he only got 15 cents for each Dell mass market paperback priced at only $2.95. That is a huge difference. Yeah. 
It was not clear whether Dell would publish a paperback sooner than a year after the hardback release, the traditional timing for paperback publication. The result of the lawsuits were never released, but Dell did produce the paperback and sold millions. But you'd have to sell millions to make up for the money that he's that he would lose from just selling a million. Yeah. So if you understand what's going on, they said, hey, we got the paperback coming out in a little bit. So people who are going to go buy, spend, you know, twelve fifty on the hardback are going to go, well, I can get it for two ninety five if I just wait a couple months. So fuck, I'll just wait a couple months. That's a lot of money just flying out of his fucking pocket. Yeah. I'd be pissed too. Yeah. On April 10th, 1977, Mark Ottaway, a travel for the a travel writer for the Sunday Times of London, wrote an article entitled Roots Uncovered that the United States was in the grip of roots mania. Roots had been presented as fact and that quote above all else accounts for the book's phenomenal success, phenomenal success. But Ottaway, who had gone to the Gambia to write about tourism, claimed to have happened on information that exposed Haley's research as fraudulent. He wrote that Kebe Fofana was a man of notorious unreliability. Residents of Jufur were involved with the slave trade, not as victims, but as collaborators. Ottaway claimed that Haley's Gambian advisors had not found an informant in Badabu, further to the east in Gambia, but when they looked in an ancient kingdom of Bara at Jufor, they found somebody who would tell Haley's family story. Ottaway had discovered that Bakare Sidibe, the Gambian archivist, had told Haley in 1973 that by birth Fofana was not a griot, but an imam, and in reality, something of a playboy. Again, his young days were spent more in sowing wild oats than in studying. Ottaway wrote that in Jofur, no villagers, quote, no villagers can remember the name of any ancestor captured by slaves except, miraculously, that of Kuta Kinte. Several Jofur people told Ottaway that on that day in 1967, when Haley visited, everyone there knew he was coming and why. Ottaway doubted that the person Haley said was taken to America in 1767 was, in fact, Kunta Kinte, but Haley chose 1767 on the basis of his American research, not on evidence from the Gambia. When Ottaway put the factual problems before Haley on the day before the article ran, Haley conceded that there were probably mistakes in the book, but he said that he had been, quote, misled during his research in Gambia. Haley told the reporter that everyone in the Gambia cast doubt on cast doubts on everyone else, and in the end, he had to believe someone. So he chose to believe Fofana. Based on a week of research in Gambia, Ottaway was certain that Haley's story was wrong. Quote, The probabilities that Kunta Kinte disappeared much later than 1767, that he was never shipped as a slave to America, and that he was not an ancestor of Haley, far outweigh any possibility that he did or was. If it happened, 
at all, Kunta Kinte's disappearance was more likely to have taken place in 1829 when the village more nearly fit Haley's description. Ottaway's story was big international news. On April 10th, Haley was on his way back from London when a New York Times reporter asked him to comment. He fought back immediately. Quote, People are seeking now to explode Roots. It would be a scoop to beat all hell if Roots could be proved to be a hoax, and that, and that's one of the reasons why it was so important to me to document as best I could. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, is he lying or is he not lying? There's no way to know. The only way to ever know is to do a DNA test. I suppose. By the end of that week, Haley had returned to Jafur with 50 American visitors, including his brothers, Lou Blau, and a large contingent of photographers, some of them there to gather film footage for the next miniseries, Roots, The Next Generation. Or as I like to call it, Roots 2, Electra Boogaloo, this time with person. Jeez, I wish you guys could hear my eyes rolling. <laughs> In Jafur, the villagers had never seen television. The more doubtful his critics were, the more adamant Haley became that Roots was factual. At the end of his Gambian visit, Haley expressed anger that Ottaway was headline-grabbing and that he had deliberately distorted and slanted what Haley had said. Haley had many come to his defense, including historians from Harvard and Yale. So that went big into... You know, well, he could be right. You know, I mean, if you're going to believe somebody, professors from Harvard and Yale, they probably know what they're talking about. Yeah, you've got some Ivy League yeah. professors and you've got... It's really one of those things It's like there's no way you can know all this. Oh, well, I did this research, but you're, there's no way you can know all this. But he did this research. There's no way he can know all this. So it's a fight of, well, we think we know what we're talking about. Well, we don't think you know what you're talking about. Okay. Well, he has his hypothesis. The only thing is you can't really test your results because you didn't have the equipment during that time. Yeah, I would love to get some of the uh, the relatives now and DNA test them, even to see if there's even any connection. Because yeah. for as far as we know, they might not even, he, his ancestors might not even came from Gambia or Jafar or anything like that in the beginning with. They could have came somewhere else. From a different part of Africa. Yeah. yeah. The financial success of Roots opened the possibility of copyright infringement claims, a common occurrence in publishing. Haley spent much of 1977 and nearly all of 1978 working on his defense in five such suits. One was quickly dismissed, and another, about which little is known, was defended successfully by Doubleday. Margaret Walker Alexander, a poet and novelist, brought two of them the primary one having to do with her novel, Jubilee, and a second suit based on her essay, How I Wrote Jubilee. She sued Haley in mid-April 1977 in federal court in the Southern District of New York, charging that Haley had taken his, his depictions of the Waller and Lee plantations from portraits drawn in Jubilee. A few days later in the same jurisdiction, Harold Corlander, a folk a folklorist filed the claim that there were numerous similarities of theme, structure, and language between Roots and his book, The African, published in 1967 and described in the New York Times as a novel dealing with freedom in Africa and slavery in Georgia. 
Haley responded that he had spent 12 years writing the book, quote, and if I were copying, I'd type faster than that. <laughs> he's got a point. Now, they, they do in the book, I'll get to how it all shapes up, but in the book, they do point to a few things in the in the Jubilee. They point to like a few words that are used, and it's like, those are just turns of phrase. People use those all the time. And in Coralanders, it's the same thing. It's, okay, well, these are turns of phrase that are used all the time. But they also show some full-on sentences that are pretty close in structure to one another. With all it's, his traveling time and everything, he probably read so, some so books. You, so you're like, oh, well, because you'll find out Coralander actually... The judge, and this is a piece of shit judge, actually signs over the rights so Corlander can look at all of Haley's notes and everything that he was working on, everything he had. And he's able to go through there and pick like 90 some odd different spots where he says it matches up with his book. Problem is, the majority of those are just the same words or same turns of phrase pretty much everybody uses. The kicker was the small handful of sentences or half paragraphs that really fit together. And it's kind of... Like, at first, you're like, he obviously didn't copy. It took him 12 years. He obviously wasn't copying. And those are just words. And then you see some of these phrases like... Oh, fuck. Which, I mean... Murray Fisher helped him write it. It could have been that Murray Fisher had read that book and then thought, well, that's a good way to put it, and he put it that way. That could be it, too. Or Lisa Drew, because she was also editing. It might not have been Haley. Because, again, More 12, years to write, 12 years to write a book, you think he'd do it faster if he was just copying it. Yeah, and he wasn't the one typing it. Yeah. So the Alexander case was dismissed in September of 1978. Because it, they, it just, they didn't have the proof. But the Corlander case was not as simple. In 1970, Haley had lectured at Skidmore College in Sarasota Springs, New York, on Before This Anger. In the audience was an English professor, Joseph Burke, a specialist in Native American literature who also had a strong interest in African history. Burke had taught in Ghana from 66 to 69, and knew many African writers, including Chianu Akabe, author of the internationally renowned anti-colonist novel, Things Fall Apart. He also knew Coralander personally and admired both his collection of Native American folklore and the African. Burkach found Haley's lecture interesting and talked with him for some time at the reception that followed. Haley asked him what the book he used in teaching about Africa, and he mentioned the African, which he thought, quote, dealt so well with so many aspects of the slave experience in Africa on ship and in America. Haley seemed not to have heard of it, quote, now this is Burgock uh, quoting, then I drove the three miles home, grabbed my personal copy that I annotated, and came back to the reception where he was waiting for me, with his overcoat on. 
I, po- I pointed out a few things in the book to him, then gave it to him. He placed it in his right coat pocket, shook my hand, thanked me, and said he was sure it would be useful, that he would read it on the plane ride home and let me know what he thought of it. Now again, Haley said he'd never heard of the African, let alone read it. Now, on top of that, like I had said, the judge they got for this case was not Haley's biggest fan. And at one point volunteered, quote, I don't read much. Go figure. The trial started in November of 1978. The judge was continually hostile to Haley. And as it went on, he hid that hostility less and less. In the end, it went from... Innocent until proven guilty to, he said you copied his book. Prove that you didn't. Yeah. That's really, and, and I don't get into it a whole lot. The judge is a piece of shit. He uh, recuses himself from from it at one point and then re-puts himself into it again. I didn't realize you could do that. But I he, didn't. But he, no, he tries to recuse himself and then the lawyer for, um, uh, Corlander says, no, you stay the judge. So he did. Yeah. And so he's, so I don't get into it too much here, but he's a piece of shit. Read the book. If, if you got the time, get the book, read it, and you'll hate this fucking judge because he's just a, uh, he's obviously a white supremacist. And I'm, it's, this is obviously because Haley's black. And the judge ends up pretty much strong arming Haley into a settlement with threats of perjury charges. A settlement was reached on December 14th. There's no definitive number in public record, because they usually keep that stuff silent, but $650,000 was widely reported. That's a lot of fucking money. It is a lot of fucking money. Roots, the next generation, Roots 2, Electric Boogaloo, this time it's personal, what? This is stupid. <laughs> Broadcast in early 1979. The miniseries was 14 hours long, two hours longer than the original Roots, and it was shown over seven consecutive nights. The production cost $18 million, three times as much as the first Roots. It followed Haley's family from 1880s through World War II, which was the time covered in the last 30 pages of Roots and then touched on the decades that followed, culminating in Haley's trip to Africa. Now just think about that for a second. This book is huge. He spends all this time just covering Africa, the coming to Africa, um, being on a plantation, all this stuff. And then the last 30 pages is 1880 to just after World War II. And yeah, they say that, it felt rushed. It was fucking rushed. It, yeah, that, yeah. As in the first Roots broadcast, white characters were created who had not appeared in the book, but here they were necessary to develop important themes about race relations and to tell the true story of the black experience after Reconstruction. Much of it adhered to the facts Allie had made well-known since the 1960s, including his troubled marriage to Nan, but it also contained many new characters, mostly whites, and scenes created just for television that filled out the narrative of black history from emancipation 
to the 1860s to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Airing from February 19th to February 25th, 1979, Roots the Next Generation was viewed by 110 million Americans, just 20 million fewer than the first miniseries, and it got better reviews. Newsweek said it was richer in a physical sweep and a psychological shading, graced with acting seldom seen on the tube. Roots 2 completed Haley's saga of the people on television, and with the help of David Wolper, he had given more than 100 million Americans a new understanding of the black experience in the United States. Together, the two Roots miniseries had filled a huge gap in public's knowledge of black history, and it had given Americans vivid images that would enable them to hold on to that new awareness, kind of like Kuta Kinte getting the front of his foot cut off. Now, both Roots series were autobiographical, and so was Haley's next television production, Palmerstown, USA. A weekly series that ran in 1980 and 1981 comprised of 17 episodes. Haley collaborated with the producer, Norman Lear. Does that name sound familiar? No. It should, because he enjoyed great success in the 1970s with several television series, most notably... All in the Family. Oh. Haley suggested the plots of the episode and collaborated on some scripts. Palmerstown finally realized the plot and theme of the novel, The Lord and Little David, which Haley had begun writing in the early 1950s and tried to get published well into the 60s. It incorporated the original presumption of before this anger that there were a time in, in the South in the 1930s when blacks and whites got along more amicably than they would in the 60s. Palmerstown drew on Haley's life, but it was not as explicitly autobiographical as the Two Roots miniseries. He named the town after the branch of his family and modeled it on Henning. Also, uh, Roots 2, Alex Haley is portrayed, portrayed by James Earl Jones. Go figure. I think it's, it's like, hey, I'll put you in TV. And James Earl Jones is like, you'll put me in TV? He hadn't done Star Wars yet. Uh... Now, maybe, yeah. No, it was about the same time. So it was about the same Star Wars and Roots 2. It was about the same time. Actually, it was exactly the same time. Haley did little writing in the early 1980s. Quote, even as the Roots madness died down, I continued to do, to do too much speaking and not enough writing. Because I don't like to turn people down. It bothers me to hurt anyone's feelings. <laughs> so what he would do is he would just lie to them. Tell them, I can do that, and then just not do it. Lecturing was easy and lucrative. He was good at it, and he loved doing it, which helps. He was now paid $10,000 per lecture, and it gave him good reason to indulge his wanderlust, although he said he did not keep up the frantic, the frantic speaking pace of the late 1960s, 1970s. By the late 80s, his income from royalties had declined to the point that he needed to lecture to maintain a high standard of living. It's pretty much so we're going to skip a bunch of years because that's pretty much all he did is lecture, lecture, lecture. In 1986, Haley decided to return to his roots in Tennessee. He lived in California, mostly in Los Angeles since the early 70s, and with Haley now at age 65, the move represented a large shift in lifestyle. He and his brothers had reacquired the family home in Henning, which they had sold after Aunt Liz died. 
The property had fallen into disrepair and been damaged by a fire, but now they renovated it and, thanks to Alex's fame, had it named a state historical landmark. The Haley brothers planned to turn the house into a tourist site. In the fall of 86, Haley bought two condos in Knoxville. He agreed to teach a course at the University of Tennessee, and the university administrator asked the English department to name him an adjunct professor. But the English professors, often struggling with plagiarism by students, thought he might have already set a bad example. Hmm. You don't want to you don't want to say don't plagiarize and then bring on somebody who has gone to court over plagiarism to teach a class. Yeah. That yeah, that makes sense. Haley had attracted a biographer who learned perhaps more than anyone else about the inner life of the writer. And Annie Romaine was a pretty and extroverted 43-year-old North Carolina native who had studied history at the University of Virginia in the 60s. By the time she met Haley in 86 and they agreed she would write his bio, she was divorced. What? You see where it's going? Yeah. Even though though writing a bio on someone like Haley wasn't easy, they became very close. This was around the time that his marriage to Maya Lewis was falling apart. No saying if it was from all the late nights Romaine would spend at his house talking. At one point, she claimed he told her that he had been in love with her since they first met. She never confessed to being his lover. She also never denied it. Haley finally started writing again on the outline for a miniseries, Queen. Queen told the story of the relationship between Simon Haley's maternal grandparents, the Confederate Colonel James Jackson, and slave woman, and then the life of their child, Queen. Haley had met white Jackson family members in Florence, Alabama, and got information about the family from them. In its February 1992 issue, the black celebrity magazine Essence celebrated Haley's return to writing, discussing Queen, which Haley had been talking about for a decade by then, probably telling everybody the book would be out in six months. The article noted that the writer's speaking engagements enabled his philanthropy, the full scholarships he provided for needy Tennesseans and Gambians to attend college. Essence concluded the piece with this ominous and unfortunate bit of foreshadowing. Quote, Alex Haley is a national treasure, and his importance to the world, and to African Americans in particular, was perhaps best expressed by Haley himself, when he wrote that in Africa, when a griot dies, it is if a library has burnt to the ground. Fortunately, Alex Haley, our griot, lives which is maybe the worst possible thing to put in a magazine article late on february 9th a sunday evening alex haley was admitted to an emergency room due to chest pains he died from complications of a heart attack on february 10th 1992 his funeral had to be held in memphis because there were no churches big enough in henning to accommodate the amount of mourners. So there's a whole another chapter, whole, whole fuck chapter about fighting over his money. And there's another guy, a whole bunch of other people that come out and try to discredit him. 
So here's all that I pretty much have about that. There was much fighting over who was owed what and who deserved what as far as inheritance. His brother George took over his estate for the sale and disbursement of his belongings. George was soon to find out that Alex still had many debts that needed to be paid off. For the years to come, more and more historians and critics would come out of the woodwork and try to discredit Haley's work and character, calling him a plagiarist and claiming he knowingly wrote a fiction book and called it history. Now, this is my opinion. In the end, he wrote a book that changed the way both black and white Americans looked at the horrors of slavery and led more African Americans to ponder over and search for their own ancestors to understand their heritage and where their roots truly lie. And that, my friends, is the life of one Alex Haley. Yay! That was a great story. Good. Well, that was only a two-parter. Yeah. Usually after we finish a two-part, we like to discuss what you thought. What did you think? I thought it was great. About him. I told you, I, he doesn't seem like the type of person you would like because he makes promises, he breaks them, he lies to people. He doesn't like to get into conflict. He's a people pleaser, but... He hates getting into conflict, so he'll lie to get out of it. Yeah, that, it's not the type of person I like, but, I mean, he goes far into depths for his research to make sure his writing is Look at, he loved the research more than he did the actual writing of it. Right, but he he wanted to make sure that the the person felt like they were there it seems like. Yeah, he wanted he wanted to give you every single detail he possibly could. And to I, his I, own detriment sometimes. Yes, yeah. and I I like that about an author sometimes. Sometimes I didn't need to know what William S. Burroughs had for breakfast every morning right but. and uh, i forget who who wrote it but la grande Melnaise or however you pronounce it the first 10 pages are describing every tree and every rock yeah. on this path yeah that this uh person is it's like one of the longest books in history isn't it no 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 i'm thinking of a different one then yeah because there's another one like that that describes just every single detail of everything, and it's like like 41,000 pages or some shit like that. No, it's this isn't like that. It, okay. But I was like, I couldn't even, after I read that, I was like, when are you going to get to the fucking story? I, what every leaf on this, every tree looks like, and what every rock looks like, and the crunch of every leaf has nothing to do with the story. Just say it was... That's the first 10 pages? Yes. Okay, so whatever book that is that she just said, go out and get it and just skip to the 11th page. <laughs> <laughs> but as I was like, oh my gosh, do you have to be so descriptive? Yeah. You can you can reel it back a little mm -hmm. bit, you know? But it, it was one of the very few books that I could not finish. Okay. So that that's it's like, I, I just couldn't get past that part. Yeah. But yeah, so him doing all that research... Good for him. Could have dialed it the back The copyright a bit. infringement, yeah. eh, you know, at least I went up to what you did. If you did it. If, if you it was did him. It. If it was Murray. If it was Lisa Drew. If it was coincidence, which some of it does seem like coincidence. Yeah, a lot of the uh, phrasing and, and the words, just similar words. Yeah, but when it's whole, like, half paragraphs that are a lot like each other. 
Listen, I'll show you the book. I'll, I'll show but you what Even if you're going to paraphrase something, at least paraphrase it in your own language. Well, and if you're going to use it straight out of somebody else's book, the best way to do that is footnote it that you grabbed it from this person's book. That that takes care of all of it. You just say, oh, by the way, this part I got from this book. And then they can't say, you're plagiarizing me. You can say, well, I told everybody I got it from this book, so suck it. True. Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion is 90% of the book is just footnotes of him taking from other people. It drives me fucking crazy. But it is what it is. All right, well, I would love to tell you guys about what's going to happen next week, uh, but honestly, I don't know. Uh, I still have to start research on our next author. I have another author. Yeah, we'll call it. Well, I have, an, I have another subject that I have worked on. It's going to be a one-off, so we'll either have that one next week or we'll have our series on our next author next week. It's going to be the one-off or the series is going to be one of the other. It just depends on if I can get all the research done in time and have the scripts written in time because that author's it's a little uh, convoluted of where I should start, where I shouldn't, what I should put in, what not. Well, you'll find out later. Yeah. Um, so next week's going to be up in the air. We will put out an episode. Just not sure what it's going to be about. It's so, a surprise. Yeah, to us too. Yay. Can't <laughs> wait to find out. <laughs> All right, Stephanie, let's give everybody our socials so we can let them get back to whatever the fuck they were originally doing. Okay, on the Twitter and the gram, we are at Open a F-I-N-G Book. At Audio Parfait, and I am at ECJBAT. I am Young ETAM6 on Twitter, Young ETAM on Instagram. Again, change it when I feel like it. Uh, Goodreads account is goodreads.com slash audio parfait. You can see what we've been reading for research, uh, the books that we cover on the weekday cliff notes, books that Stephanie has read. If you have, you know, the next week or so to look through that many books. I haven't been reading lately. I've been too preoccupied. No, with but the, the kids books that school. you already have on there. Yeah. Yeah. So you can email us info at audio parfait.com. Uh, let us know what you think about Alex Haley, about roots, Malcolm X, the autobiography of Malcolm X, uh, any authors you would like for us to cover, uh, any books you would like for us to talk about, or just, if you just want to shoot the shit, Email us and maybe we'll read it on one of our weekday Cliff Notes episodes. Our webpage is audioparfait.com. You can get all the episodes of this show, all of our author series, plus all of our weekday Cliff Notes episodes, and all the episodes of our other podcast. I know it's not real, but that had to hurt. It's a wrestling podcast, and we talk about wrestling. Real original. Yeah. Um, Go to Patreon, patreon.com slash audio parfait. We have a new tier up there. If you want to hear all the stupid fucked up shit that we mispronounce or say. Or that you mispronounce. That we mispronounce and say. <laughs> and uh, just all the stupid shit that I end up cutting out of the show because it makes us look ridiculous. Um, $15 tier. You get those. You get to hear all of it unedited with the exception of added in music and noise reduction and all that shit. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to stand listening to it. Cause it, it's really noisy if I don't do that. Um, plus we still have the stickers up there. I want to get more stickers. I want to get like bumper stickers that say open a fucking book. So I think I'm going to look into getting some of those, uh, getting some more merch to put up there. And, yeah. and people who sign up for the Patreon, will get some free things. We'll get first shots at some for at merch, uh, when it can becomes available. So we'll get all that up there later, but go to Patreon, all the donations, will go to make making these shows better 
in any way we possibly can. Absolutely. Rate and review us wherever you listen. There is usually some type of um, subscribe, follow, rate, review, comment section, something. Um, wherever you listen, please let us know what you're thinking. Um, five stars is always appreciated. Uh, just tell us if how, how we're doing. Let everybody else know how you feel about the show. Uh, again, go to your libraries, your local bookstores, your local independent bookstores. Help out your local authors, your you know independent authors. They really need it right now. And, Stephanie, I think that's it. I think that's it, too. All right. My well, ass is hurting. <laughs> I tried to give you a nicer chair, and you told me that. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have been able to move. All right, well... Take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys.